Well, welcome to the first day of a shadowy Christmas cellcast, and indeed, a very, very happy Christmas to my esteemed patrons, and to everyone else who's getting this a week later, a very happy new year. May 2021 proved to be rather more of a blessing for us all than 2020. So, on this day in 1979, Kabul was waking up to Soviet occupation. Babrak Karmal had been installed as the new leader of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, and a message from him, which incidentally had been recorded well in advance, had been played on all the media channels. The former leader, Hafizullah Amin, who incidentally was a deeply, deeply unpleasant and murderous man, had himself been killed in the storming of his palace the night before, in the Operation Storm 333. Indeed, Soviet Army uh, Regulatory, traffic police, were at that point directing traffic in Kabul's main squares. It was the start of, frankly, a ten-year nightmare for both Afghanistan and the Soviet Union. But, okay, this may not sound particularly Christmassy, but I do want to pull out, because of the actual anniversary, three very specific threads from this tangle that may well be of rather more contemporary relevance. First of all, this was going to be a small war. It was certainly not meant to be a, as I say, 10-year epic that about a million Soviet men and women would cycle through at various times, 15,000 or so of whom would never actually survive the experience. Not at all. The idea was this. They would send in their own special forces to topple Amin and impose a new leader who was rather more amenable, but also rather more pragmatic. The problem with Hafizullah Amin is that he was going full speed, full pelt, into an attempt at a massive modernization of a country that really wasn't ready for it, or frankly, largely didn't really want it. So Kamal was going to be more sensible, and there will be this show of force from the Soviet Union, which clearly would cow the Afghans. At the time, after all, Afghanistan had looked as if it had been fall, falling, sliding at least, into anarchy, as more and more areas rebelled against Amin. Well, this intervention would be a chance for the Soviets to make it clear that no more silliness and they should all get into line. Now, the actual initial operation was pretty much a textbook success. And it's not just simply because the Soviets had had a chance to massively pre-prepare. Though when one looks actually at the, the invasion itself, I mean, it certainly is clear the extent to which they had done their homework. Everything from checking the heights of every bridge onwards. But even when things change at the last minute, the special forces that carried out the, the initial operation, they adapted. They did what special forces do. So that went exactly as planned. It was the rest of the war that didn't. And why? Well, first and foremost, because although the Soviets had their notion of how this war was going to go, the Afghans didn't stick to the script. For some strange reason, they felt that they didn't want to basically surrender to the Shuravi, the infidel Russians who had come, and the result was this exceedingly vicious, unpleasant civil war. Now, I think there's an interesting parallel there. The very, very smooth initial operation. 
Then the subsequent slide into uh, open-ended morass of a conflict, simply or primarily rather because of a misunderstanding of how the other side is going to react. Let's look, for example, at Ukraine. The shift from Crimea to Donbass. Crimea, this almost bloodless takeover. Only five people died. And okay, that's five people more than should have died. But nonetheless, in purely military terms, that is an operation that was carried out flawlessly. And now Donbass. What was clearly intended, again, as a six-month show of force. Just enough time for Kiev to realise that it had no real scope to break out of Moscow's orbit and would come back cap in hand apologetically. Well, no, that didn't happen. You had, even when the Ukrainian armed forces were not yet in a fit state to resist, you had the rise of these various militias. You had a whole-scale mobilisation of patriotic passions throughout the country. And in fact, you had probably the closest to a genuine movement towards building a true Ukrainian state than we've seen at any point in the last century. And they're stuck. See, the thing about Afghanistan was that Gorbachev could withdraw because it wasn't his war. He had not been part of the decision-making process. It was Brezhnev, it was Andropov, it was a whole variety of the old men who preceded him. He could, and even that, it took quite a bit of political finessing, but nonetheless, he could basically say, this was not my war, and we now need to pull out because it's clear that it's a tremendous mistake. Well, Putin can't say that. And this is why, one of many reasons, why I feel this conflict is going to continue so long as Putin remains in power, or at least even not in power, but in dominant within the system. Then let's take a look at Syria. Now, Syria is rather different because there, again, they very much geared themselves from the beginning towards keeping this a very limited operation, one that was largely reliant on air power, on a certain degree of special forces intervention, and where they were going to actually have ground troops, there were these Wagner pseudo-mercenaries rather than actual Russian troops. They managed to, to basically, I would say, be quite successful, not just in terms of prosecuting the war, but also in terms of managing their commitment. But still, they are there. They're stuck there for the, for the long term. And it is still possible that things could take a rather more dramatic swing away from Damascus. So, in a way, that's, that's still a conflict that remains up for grabs, let's say. So here's the general picture. Look, the Kremlin does have a tendency to understate the agency of locals. It does tend to understate the degree to which people, whether it's Ukrainians or Afghans, or often actually people in their own country, have their own agendas, their own passions, their own commitments, their desires, their own plans and will not necessarily follow the role that Moscow has placed for them. And I think that's something which we need to bear in mind when we look forward to, for example, what's going to happen in Belarus. I mean, again, I think it is clear that they've made a fairly substantial blunder by committing themselves to Lukashenko. It's not entirely impossible that they could pull back, but I don't don't think it's terribly likely. But the bottom line is this. The Belarusian people are ultimately going to determine what happens there. Likewise, across their own country, look at what what happened in Khabarovsk and elsewhere. There is this failure to understand this point about agency of others. Though, of course, as we see the current situation in Iraq and indeed Afghanistan, perhaps this is more an imperial flaw 
than a specifically Russian one. Now, let me move on to the second point, which is to look at the issues of corruption and official callousness. There is a lot written and said, and indeed experienced, alas, precisely about corruption and the brutal self-interest, but above all disinterest of the, of the elite towards the experiences and problems of the masses. And obviously this is something that tends to particularly bite at the height of winter. However, the irony is that I think we need to be aware of just actually how far the situation has improved. I did my PhD on the Soviet war in Afghanistan way, way back when it was still just about a Soviet Union. And one of the things I did as a result was to talk to a lot of veterans and often hearing their truly searingly scarring stories. And let me just give one particular example of a veteran whom I came across. He had been an infantryman in the conflict and at one point in operation, I think it was outside Kandahar, and they were riding in their BTR-60 PB personnel carrier, a perfectly reasonable infantry bus, but certainly nothing to, to take into action, when they ran over a mine. The net result was that even after emergency treatment at Kandahar and then casualty evacuation back to the Soviet Union, he lost both his legs at the knee. Now, he was actually, ironically, moderately lucky in that he was actually issued a wheelchair on his release back into civilian life, rather than actually having to sort of wheel him around on a little sort of wheeled platform that you did, did sometimes see. But of course, what he really wanted were, were prosthetic limbs, prosthetic legs. And one day, after about two, two years of waiting, he was finally told, your prosthetic limbs are ready to be fitted, come to the local hospital. So... A couple of his mates took him there and they arrived and they presented all their various documentation. And the doctor said, no, 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 I'm sorry, I, I can't actually issue these limbs. Why not? I need a certificate confirming that you've lost your legs below the knee. And obviously the response was, well, take a look. And he said, ah, oh, no, but I have no idea actually how you lost those. No, I need to know that it was confirmed as a result of actions in Afghanistan. Now, it's not actually that the situation was quite so inflexible as that. This was clearly a predatory bribe-taking moment. The problem was the surgeon, the doctor rather, in the hospital, he was asking more than the, the veterans, who by definition tended to be blue-collar types, than they had. So instead, fortunately he had his friends with him, they piled back into the battered larder that one of them had, managed to find a doctor who, for the right price, was willing to scribble some makeshift certification, took it back, and he got his prosthetic limbs. Now that is actually, ironically enough, a happy story, because it actually worked out right in the end. There are so many rather more unhappy stories of people not getting anything like the kind of care that they needed, or indeed the privileges, the, the housing, whatever they've been promised, precisely because everyone was taking bribes, everyone was demanding bribes, and the official structures just didn't care. And in many ways, one of the genesis of civil society in late Soviet times, in the whole Gorbachevian, Glasnosty, Perestroika times, was veterans banding together to provide mutual self-help, because they realised that they could not expect anything like 
the promises that they've been given to actually be fulfilled in reality. Now, today, yes, there's still a lot of problems, but in part because of the media, in part because the government itself has adopted a rather different stance, I would suggest that, in fact, there has been real change. Yes, there is corruption. There's much less of that kind of predatory corruption. It tends to be sort of, as I've talked about in previous podcasts, more kind of embezzlement at a higher level. And yes, there certainly is official callousness and a failure to engage with the needs and demands of those, the peoples, and what they actually are entitled to. But, because of the media and because of social media, because of the emergence of genuine civil society, and because of a genuine change in expectations about the relationship of the state and society, things have changed. Again, I'm not saying this to say that the current situation is fine. I'm just saying it's sometimes worth putting it into context. And the third and final point I want to talk about is information, the way the information about the war spread. So we have to realise that when the Soviets first went into Afghanistan, there was no war. There was no formal declaration of war. This was not a war. This was actually just simply assisting fraternal forces within Afghanistan. But even that wasn't acknowledged. There was, and I still think it's absolutely priceless, a couple of column inches in Pravda that just simply said, today, Soviet-Afghan relations have entered a new chapter. They didn't actually mention that that new chapter meant storming the presidential palace, gunning down the, the previous leader, installing a puppet and sending tens of thousands of troops across the border. No, there was no war. That lasts a little bit. And if it, if it had been this short surgical operation with almost no casualties, they might well have got away with it, at least for a while. But the point is, it wasn't. By the time that Brezhnev has died for the last time, and Yuri Andropov has replaced him. Well, Yuri Andropov is a very different kind of figure. First of all, Yuri Andropov um, had a rather ruthless intellect and don't very much wanted to kind of address the facts as they really were and not just rely on hope that things would work out. He wasn't a Micawberish figure. He realised that by this point, you're beginning to get boys coming home traumatised and in some cases, boys coming home in zinc boxes. It's hard to maintain the idea that there's nothing going on in Afghanistan. So instead, the public line shifted. It just simply said that there, there were some police actions, that Soviet soldiers were in Afghanistan exercising alongside the forces of the Fraternal Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, when from time to time they are attacked by bandits. And of course, they deliver a devastating yet proportionate rebuff to said bandits. So it was a way of trying to explain why there were soldiers there, and more to the point, why some of the soldiers were coming back injured or dead, without actually admitting that there was a war. When Andropov died, you had the very, very brief, and um, scarcely even chair-warming leadership of Konstantin Chernyenko, where, ironically enough, you actually get the first real admissions that there is a war going on in the media. But the point is, that was a process that was initiated by, by Andropov, and part of the deal with the reformers that had allowed arch-conservative Chernyenko to become general secretary was that although he wouldn't have to push any more reforms, he would not try to block ones which were already in train. But anyway, Chernyenko had been selected by the reformers as their sort of their 
most favoured Conservative to back because he had severe emphysema and could be expected to die soon, which he duly did. Then Gorbachev comes in and then you actually begin to get glasnost. But the key thing is this. When it's something that's totally outside your own personal experiences, it's easier, sometimes even more convenient, to believe the official line, to, to not challenge the lies you're being told. It's when it begins to become real, when you actually have a benchmark against which to assess the propaganda, that precisely that, that your brother-in-law has come home traumatised and not wanting to talk about where he's, where he's been and what he's done, or that someone down the street didn't come home at all, but you know, died, but the gossip is that it was Afghanistan, all these kinds of things. Once you actually have that benchmark, then the lies crumble very, very quickly. Now, why that's actually worth noting, and also actually vaguely uh, optimistic point, is there's just been this poll by the Levada Agency, which is still the, the best and most independent of all the polling agencies in Russia, on what people believe about the Navalny poisoning. Now, of that, 30% think it was faked. And another 19% think it was actually a provocation that was initiated by Western intelligence services. That 49% are essentially swallowing one or the other of the main government lines. Only 15% believe it was actually the state eliminating a political oppositionist. 7% think it was revenge against Navalny personally for his anti-corruption investigations. And bizarrely, 6% think it actually might have been part of a struggle between groups within the opposition movement. So essentially, let's take out that last 6%, but basically you've got 22% thinking that essentially Navalny was targeted, whether it was by the state or by some corrupt big beast within the state system. 49% believe the government. Seems very, very depressing. However, first of all, not everyone is always honest in surveys on this. Secondly, again, this is not something that for most people is within their personal experience. They either don't have the, the capacity or the will necessarily to challenge the lies. And thirdly, above all, I would stress how quickly this can change. I mean, Afghanistan really pivoted, I would say, over a period of about 12 to 16 months from being essentially nothing much to something which the, the official line was that it was a sort of heroic examples of Soviet internationalism, to being a tragedy. So the key thing is now how this will emerge. What's most important, after all, is that majority of Russians at least now know who Navalny is. Remember, for so long the Kremlin was trying to basically silence him. The very fact that Putin won't even mention his name, just simply call him things like, you know, that gentleman, or in this most recently, the German patient or the patient in Berlin. They know who he is. Everything else can now be built on. So that's it. Um, as I said, I'm not necessarily sure if it's an uplifting particular little cell cast for, for Christmas Day, but think of it, if nothing else, as a suitable corrective to the, the saccharine celebrations of the of this season. That's the first day of your shadowy Christmas. Tomorrow, though I'm afraid just for patrons, um, there will be some observations of life in a new suburban microrayon of Moscow. But for now, well, thank you very much indeed. I hope you found this of some interest. And of course, if you are 
a non-patron and wish you could have actually could get the full benefits of the 12 days of shadowy Christmas, well, you still can. You can become a patron and then retrospectively go and look at all the goodies. Just go to patreon.com slash shadows. But for now, have a wonderful seasonal break. Bye. Товарищ Правда, товарищ Правда.